Welcome to Logically Speaking, episode 6. I'm here with Dean McHugh, from, he studied uh, philosophy and English at the University of Dublin. He is currently studying the Master of Logic here in Amsterdam. And he had me up to talk about paradoxes, which is fantastic. Uh, for those that know me, I am writing a book on paradoxes. I send it to publishers now. And in my philosophy bachelor, I did my thesis on the surprising sound paradox. Dean, thanks for having me up. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Excited to talk about a really big issue in logic that makes a lot of people annoyed and makes it like, gives endless fun. Like <laughs> Paradoxes are problems that keep on giving more problems. Yes. So we'll have a lot to talk about today, I'm sure. Uh, and I think that when you hit me up, you said specifically semantic paradoxes. Is that something you're working on right now? Uh, it's something I've been working on recently, yeah. So semantic paradoxes are paradoxes... Well, semantic kind of means in the realm of meaning, mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to be about that. It can be paradoxes about reference and about self-reference, um, about what the meaning of a sentence is, especially when the meaning of a sentence is another sentence, mm -hmm. very closely connected to the original one, that causes all sorts of problems. And there, of course, there are many other paradoxes that we wouldn't call semantic paradoxes that don't talk about reference, like uh, you have paradoxes of time travel, for example, oh, yeah. or you have paradoxes of like probability theory and yes. stuff. They're not semantic paradoxes, but if you want, we can talk about all of them. That's cool. Um, maybe just uh, for the listeners, so paradoxes, what are they? I think the most common uh, definition people give is apparent contradictions, which is a definition I don't really like because it suggests that they're not real contradictions and that maybe uh, a little bit soon to conclude that like some of them may be real contradictions you have the whole dialetheism movement now that thinks are even true yeah so, i think one way to characterize them is just to say like a paradox is an argument with intuitive premises but an unintuitive conclusion Yes. Now, usually the inclusion is very, very unintuitive. We're talking like a contradiction. So, <laughs> but you start out with premises that you believe and you think, okay, I'll go along with this. And then, bam, you show that you end up in a contradiction or something equally unsavory. Yeah. I, so, my only like small problem with that one is, for example, the liar paradox. The liar paradox is this sentence is not true. Well, there are many variations, but classic, this sentence is not true. So is that true or not? Well, that's a problem because if it's true, then it's not true. If it's not true, then it is true. And it's not really an argument. It's kind of immediate. It's no, not an intuitive it, argument. You it's can put it into an argument pretty yeah, readily. Yeah, yeah. You say, okay, suppose that we have a sentence that behaves like this. Yeah, that's sure. your intuitive premise yeah, sure, sure, sure. because it comes from English. Yeah. And then you just do the argument that you just did. Yeah. So if the liar sentence says of itself that it's false, then yeah, if it's true, then what it says is true, so it has to be false. So you say, okay, so it's actually false, but then what it says of itself isn't the case, so it has to be not not true, so it's true. That's so then, true. and then, so you started out with the intuitive premise that the liar paradox is a reasonable sentence of our language, yeah. and then the contradiction at the end is it's the liar sentence is true if and only if it's not true, which is a contradiction. Yeah, so it does work. And maybe I, the, the reason I don't like it is because if you, if you talk about paradoxes only as arguments, the dumps plays it a little bit. It sounds kind of more, more bothersome and more interesting if they're real things. That like an object, yeah, exactly. like an itch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So maybe it's only that. But yeah, let, let's go with that. There are intuitive reasonings for basically absurd conclusions. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so first obvious question I needed to ask you. What's your favorite paradox? What are you working on? Uh, I'm working on other stuff at the moment, but I was working a while about uh, the Lyre paradox and the semantic paradoxes where you talk about reference. Um, working on that a few months ago. And then uh, one other thing I was working on is different ways that you could generate um, the same kind of form of a paradox. So I took the, the Lyre paradox, so you say that this sentence is, uh, says of itself that it's false. And then you can maybe come up with other versions that say that. So you could have, say, an object that has a property and it has the property of being maybe a contradictory predicate. So like what you have is you take a predicate mm -hmm. and then you say, okay, I define this predicate to be the contradictory predicate. So that something has it if and only if it doesn't have it. Okay. okay, so what is it? So you ask, okay, tell me a definition of what it means to have this contradictory predicate. And I say, oh, well, the definition says it's, oh, it means yeah. not to have it. And then, you, so you can see that it's not unique to sentences, but it's kind of more general because you can come up with other things that have this mix of uh, self reference and negation, but don't involve like sentence naming, uh, involve something else, such as like having a property. And would you classify Russell's paradox? Uh, in the same way? Yeah, yeah, That's, that seems to be pretty closely connected. The two things that they need for, for this pattern, I guess, this liar-like pattern, is that you have some notion of kind of referring to other sentences, mm -hmm. and then you have negation. Because yeah. if you just have... Or referring if, to other, not necessarily sentences. Yeah, yeah. Other stuff. Yeah, so for the Russell's paradox, yeah, you're referring to uh, sets. Yeah, so, Russell's paradox is in set theory the set that does not contain itself. What, what was it? Well, you take this set of things that are defined by you're in the set if and only if you're not a member of yourself. Yeah, and then it's a problem whether it is in itself. Or yeah, as soon as you ask, okay, that set itself is it a member of itself? Yeah. Then it, by definition, if it were a member of itself, then it would satisfy the condition for being in the set, which would be not a member of itself. So you say, okay, so it's actually not a member of itself. Okay, but then it, it satisfies the condition, right? Yeah. So you get the, the Russell set is an element of itself uh, if only cool. if it's not. So you're generalizing them a bit. Are there any other uh, setups you found to create the same kind of paradox? Well, a popular one is um, a kind of just a variant on the liar paradox. It's called the postcard paradox. I guess that has different names. So you imagine that you have a postcard, and then on one side you say the sentence on the other side of this postcard is true. Seems okay so yeah. far. So then you turn over the postcard and it says, oh, the sentence on the other side is false. So then it's interesting because all you need is one negation to get things going for the yeah. paradox. Because then you say, if the, the sentence on one side like says that the other one is true, so then you go over to see whether that sentence is true, and then you say, okay, the sentence on the other side says the other one is false. So then you get that same kind of loop. But the thing is, you don't always need a loop to get this paradoxical kind of behavior. So um, yeah, and we, that, so this is an important point because many people think that all paradoxes arise merely because of self-reference. So we can just cut out self-reference, uh, and we can talk about whether that's reasonable to do. But if we just cut out self-reference, then we'll have no paradoxes. Yeah, there's a paper by Stephen Yablo where he says, okay, we can come up with a paradox that doesn't involve self-reference. I think his phrase in that paper is that, like, banning self-reference is using a cannon to stop a fly. So it's a really extreme measure. But then he shows how even the, like even if you take such a big cannon, it doesn't stop the fly because you have this, this uh, paradox he came up with, 
which is where you imagine a list of sentences. And then the first sentence in this list says, all the sentences after me are false. And then the second sentence says, all the sentences after me are false. And it goes on. And you have, say, an infinite list where each one says, all the sentences after me are false. So, I don't know, let's suppose that the first sentence is true, okay? Mm -hmm. So, all the sentences after it are false, okay? So then, you look at any other sentence and you know that it's false. So, I don't know, take the second one, for example. Mm -hmm. The second one says, well, all the sentences after me are false. So, because you said the first one is true, it means the second one has to be false, because that's what the first one means to be yeah. true. It says, everything after me is false. So, number two in particular is false. Um, so then, number two says, well, for me to be false is for some sentence after me to be true. But then you get a problem because the first sentence says, okay, if, if I'm true, then all the sentences after me are false, including two. And then two says, well, if I'm true, then, well, sorry, if I'm false, then there is some sentence after me that is true, but that's not what you want. So you have to say, okay, because we have a contradiction there that in actual fact, the first sentence is uh, false. So then there is some sentence after it that is true. Okay, and then you can say if we take the second sentence and that says all sentences after me are false. So because you know that there is some sentence that is true from, the, from one being false, then either it's the number two or it's something later. Yeah. So if it's, number, if it's sentence number two, then you said that that sentence is true. And then you get the same problem. The exact same problems with the first one. Yeah. For whichever one is going to be true. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> so yeah. it's it's like you don't have any sentence referring to itself. You don't have any of these loops. But what you have is that the, the it's like a list, and then each sentence talks about the next ones. Mm -hmm. So he thought that this was a way of avoiding self-reference. Obviously, some people disagree and think, okay, there's a discussion to be had about what it means to be self-referential. But I don't know if that's such a big discussion because it's kind of a loose term that we've just been using to kind of, you know, loosely characterize these paradoxes. But it seems to me pretty clear that the Diablo paradox, this infinite list, does differ in a pretty interesting way. Yeah, it's definitely the, not the circle that we yeah. have in the liar paradox. Yeah, exactly. So that, that makes it really interesting and a cool discovery to have yeah. as well. Yeah, that's a great discovery. Right? Yeah, maybe we should also specify uh, for people that are really against self-reference, there's just this common uh, objection to, to banning self-reference that we use a lot of self-reference in natural language and also in, in any, any science. And it's really helpful. Sentences like, this sentence has more than four words are self-referential and true and problematically so. Uh, other sentences can become kind of weird, such as this sentence is true. It's not really clear if that's true or false, mm -hmm. but it's definitely much less of a problem than this sentence is false. Uh, this sentence is spoken in English. Like you, you, you can do tons of things with self-reference and be perfectly fine with it. So banning it, I like that. It's like a cannon shooting at a fly. Okay. Um, yeah, so still this this one, uh, these liar paradoxes or liar type paradox are still with sentences. You also have them with properties and with sets. Do you have any other instantiations yet? Um, no, I, I think that's that's all I've been coming up with so far. But yeah, there's, the whole approach is just to kind of try and generalize it to see like what the pattern would be. 
So right. you're kind of approximating like what it is, what's the symptom of the problem here. And then that will hopefully give you some way of saying, okay, well, if we didn't have this, then we wouldn't have the paradoxes. Like, I don't know if I'm so interested in kind of solving the paradoxes thing, like why, like how to, how to get rid of it, because it could just be that it arises naturally from assumptions that we also like. What I would like to know is to understand exactly how it works yeah, and then to know whether I should just accept that that's the way it works and live my life anyway yeah. or whether I should kind of, if there is something that could be changed that like say something that we could give up without losing all of the expressive power that we wanted, you know, because if you say, for example, deny self-reference like that really naive strategy, well, then you lose so much expressive power. Yeah. Um, so maybe this there's a more nuanced kind of less uh, bizarre or less extreme solution. That we could take, but I, I don't I don't know if we need to so ha like have a big solution or whatever like because it could just in the end be that it arises from some very natural things that we want and that that's just the way it is. So one thing that comes up as well is that a lot of the discussion of paradoxes, these semantic paradoxes about truth in formal treatments has changed a lot since uh, we have a, a lemma like from Kurt Gödel. Uh, which he used w when he was proving the incompleteness of arithmetic. And uh, this lemma says that if you have a, a, a theory in a first-order language that is strong enough to express um, what's known as uh, Robinson arithmetic, which is not, it's, it's a kind of arithmetic theory, but you don't have induction. Like, you know, if you say, okay, there's, there's zero, it works for zero, and then it works for all yeah. the numbers. If it works for one number, it works for the next number. Well, then we can say it works for all the numbers. So you don't even need that. Okay. Um, but with, with the usual uh, axioms of arithmetic, so how addition behaves, how multiplication behaves, what you're able to do is take the kind of deductive system, like the system for saying, okay, if you have these sentences, then you can derive these, these other sentences. You can actually turn that into um, an arithmetic property. So you could say that, well, what it means for this sentence to be an axiom is for this sentence in arithmetic to be true. Okay. And Robinson arithmetic is all you need to take all of those sentences uh, or all of the things of how the deductive systems work and turn it into arithmetical properties. Okay. Okay. So then what you can do then it turns out, which is, was, I think was a surprise to many people, is that it's true of that system that when you have any given property with one free variable, like any property that says, okay, X has yeah. property P, then you can always prove a sentence of the form, uh, the sentence S is true, if and only if, the representation of S, like in the arithmetic, so like, it's like the code that you have for S, the number that is assigned to represent S in the yeah. arithmetic. So you can always prove that you have a sentence that is says S is true if and only if S, like the code of S, has the property that you want. That's called the diagonal lemma. So what does that mean exactly? So it just means that given any uh, property whatsoever, yeah. uh, with one free variable, so it says X has property P, then you can prove that you can prove a sentence there is a sentence s such that s is true if and only if the code of s has the property p oh and then if we assign to that property p stuff like is false yeah exactly then, okay yeah so the thing is you can't just say okay we're going to deny some of these properties because they're they're misbehaving or whatever 
because the diagonal lemma means that when you have a strong enough theory, so it's able to represent like this basic arithmetic without induction, then you're never going to be able to get away from proving sentences that have these bad misbehaving properties. As soon as we get basic arithmetic. Yeah. So you know how multiplication behaves, you know how addition behaves. Like if you just had addition, it wouldn't be enough. It's not strong enough to represent the whole logic, like the deductive system in terms of arithmetic. But if you have, um, if you have this multiplication and addition, uh, so it's basically all the axioms of piano arithmetic without induction, then you are able to generate this diagonal lemma and then you have a problem. This, is, this has had some interesting application as well, like in philosophy. So there was one paper from 2005 where uh, Peter Milne said, um, you, you have a theory which is about truth makers. So truth makers are supposed to be these entities in the world, these like real concrete things that make a sentence true. So the idea is that this relation of truth making between an entity and a sentence is what makes language hook onto the world. So some people have said, well, maybe every sentence has a truth maker. And then Peter Milner says, well, if our formal theory has enough arithmetic that it can represent uh, Robinson arithmetic, well, then you're going to be able to use the diagonal lemma to get a sentence M, let's say, such that it's provable that M, if and only if, M has no truth maker. And then the person who's called the truth maker maximalist who says, I want all my sentences to have truth makers because I want all my sentences to hook onto the world, has to deal with this like sentence from the diagonal lemma that says, look, I'm only true if I don't have a truth maker. Okay. And you can prove that it's, it, it's true only if, it, if and only if it has no truth maker. Like that's not something you can get away with. It's not as if you added that into your logic. The logic gave that itself. So do you also get from this immediately that not everything in the world is physical or material? Well, that's a. I think that's drawing like a metaphysical conclusion from a logical premise, which is kind of confusing anyway. Because you you think that like logic doesn't know what it what its metaf metaphysics is. Like metaphysics is a way of kind of keeping track of ontological commitments, keeping track of what the, the best theory to have about this is. But logic doesn't kind of think about those things. It doesn't really care. So, it, well, certainly it's one thing to say that something has a truth maker and another thing to say it's physical. They're very sure. different things. But it's also a property, right? Like what, what was the schema again that I can plug in properties to? So you have, it's always provable if your theory represents Robinson arithmetic that you have a sentence such that S is true if and only if the property holds of the code of S. Okay, so the code of S would have to be immaterial. Like, I, I could do that. Well, the code of S is just a, yeah, so a it number. Yeah, so it doesn't make sense in that. Like, I would like an object to be immaterial rather than the code of S. Okay. So it kind of works, but not really. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I don't think logic is caring, cares too much about what the ontological commitments are, they're kind of a different set of issues. I don't yeah. think so either, I just know that uh, a past professor of mine, Emmanuel Rutte, uh, has an argument, I think it's called the semantic argument, which uh, aims to prove that there are no universal properties. And I thought, oh, maybe uh, that's somehow similar to what we're doing here, or maybe he's making use of the same kind of mechanism. Because he does like to draw ontological conclusions from certain sort of logical premises. He proves God a lot, 
in mm. these sort of ways. It's really cool. Okay, maybe, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to yeah, but because you're talking with sentences and you think, okay, sentences are devices of human art, like we've made them up. Yeah. Um, you don't want to, like, there's a big discussion in philosophy about where sentences stand. Some people think, well, actually, what we're talking about are propositions. And then propositions are kind of these, like, immaterial objects that somehow have a truth value, but aren't what we use when we talk to each other. Because when I send vibrations through the air to you and to your listeners, then, like, that's. Like, that's just like some way of getting you to understand the sentence that I have, yeah. which is like a string of symbols or whatever that has some meaning according to how our brains work. Um, so it's not something immaterial, it's something kind of rooted in everyday life. And then I don't know how you would kind of reconcile that with metaphysical commitment. They're kind of different issues, the logical issues and the metaphysical issues, but it's, it could be interesting to see how they connect. Yeah. Because it's not clear that it's wrong to do it either, right? No. To, to draw such conclusions. Yeah, I'm definitely going to look into that. Um, so, we are already kind of touching on uh, a question that I meant to ask you. I tried to explain it before the episode because I haven't wrapped around my head around it completely yet. So, you need to help me out a bit. But, uh, okay. It's going to relate to paradoxes in a minute. But the question is a super fundamental philosophical question, I think. So it's about uh, what's the most fundamental research discipline? Is it the one that studies reality, the one that studies thought, or the one that studies language? And your snap answer might be, well, reality, clearly, because everything is rooted in reality. But um, we're talking about the research discipline that's most fundamental now. So another train of thought might be that, well, Actually, we have the whole Kantian thing, we have epistemology at large, basically, and we can't really access uh, reality uh, in itself. We can only access like our representation of it. So if we're talking about a research discipline, maybe what we're really investigating the most, in the most fundamental sense is our representation of the world, more so than the real world. And while we're talking about a research discipline, we could even maybe say, while we're talking to each other. So maybe we're really studying the language that we use to represent reality rather than reality itself. So first your thoughts on that, like which one is most fundamental maybe? So they all seem like they need each other and they're fundamental in their own sense. But if you have, if, okay, first, if you have to pick one, which is most fundamental, reality, language, or thought when we're talking about the research disciplines? Okay, so this would be philosophy of language, epistemology and metaphysics well if you want to confine yourself to philosophy but there's no reason why you'd have to do that you could say that when we're studying language why not include linguistics why not include cognitive okay. linguistics implicit assumption of max philosophy is more fundamental than all the other things oh, okay. so you don't need like physics is clearly less fundamental than metaphysics if you want to include them do so please i don't i don't understand where you're getting this like fundamentality hierarchy from because you can talk about maybe fundamentality of like entities, because you could say that your ontology, like electrons, are more fundamental than chemicals or something. Yeah. But I don't know how you could say that a discipline is more fundamental than another. What you could say is that the the entities it has to presuppose are more fundamental. Sure. Um, Can we say that their questions are more fundamental? Well, I think that opens up a broad sense of fundamental that is not what you're trying to get at here, because no. it could be fundamental in the sense of like. 
in the in the way like maybe logic is fundamental because every researcher has to speak to each other you know and they have to use words like and and if and it's true that and then would you want to say that logic is fundamental well not really because logic is just taking that pattern that we have in other speech and like subjecting it to some kind of scrutiny uh, some kind of scientific investigation but we've only taken a part of what that discipline of how people speak you know maybe the more logical stuff there's lots of other things that they do like you could say that a physicist has a preference for a certain theory like a certain interpretation of quantum mechanics or whatever and then like logic won't tell you how what the rules are for their preference for that theory right so we've only taken a part of this these other disciplines and said look we're going to look at these parts and kind of put them together under one view and look at them together but we haven't taken the whole thing it's it's what happens when you do abstraction so to say that one discipline is more fundamental than another i think you're only taking a part of each discipline and then saying okay this is my central focus today so if you think that metaphysics is more fundamental than physics you're only taking a part of what physics is doing and what part of physics could possibly be, be more fundamental than metaphysics? Well, I guess the, the, well, the methods that they do in physics produce a different kind of research that metaphysics just adopts. Yeah, because like metaphysics is more general, right? Physics is only about physical reality. Metaphysics allows for non-physical reality. Yeah, but metaphysics has to look at what physics is doing, listen to them, listen to physicists, and then try and evaluate how that fits in with a more general picture. Yeah. So, is it more fundamental if it has to always take on this uh, this idea from physicists and kind of... So it's more general. And, okay, yeah, so I'm definitely mixing at least two senses of fundamental uh, when I'm thinking about this. First is more general. I like the really general stuff. Metaphysics, more general than physics, because... It also allows for non-physical stuff. Okay. Okay, so far? Yeah. And then there's another one um, uh, that is like the order in which you need to solve the discipline, sort of. Uh, and that's a question where reality, thought, and language become on par. Like that, that, that's what I try to convey in my question. You can't really solve the question of what is reality before you know how your thought works because you access it through thought. Uh -oh. you, you can't do it the other way around either because your thought is still rooted in reality. No, it, it, sometimes you can mix up when something is more fundamental like in an ontological sense versus in a sense of research. So in research we do everything at the same time yeah, because sure. you take a certain bit and you kind of focus on it. But there's so much other stuff that you could have focused on and then that's just a different discipline that focuses on that. Um, so it's not as if you have to first understand how your thought works to understand, like to do any kind of application of thought, like in, in say, natural science. Ideally, you would right, understand how thought works. No, because how do you know what you're dealing with, like what thought is, unless you let it roam free and do what it does and then look at it? You know, if you always say, I'm not going to think until I know what thinking is. <laughs> You're not going to get anywhere because you're not going to have anything to look at because you're saying I'm not going to let you like It's like saying to a kid like I'm not going to let you play until I understand how you play It's yeah. like well you got to let them play first and then see what they do, you know 
So it's like if you want to understand how thinking works, you you get thinking going, and then when it's happening, you look at it in the process. Yeah, but then at least you could so you could still say I'm not gonna really uh, rely on what you tell me in this certain discipline unless I understand what taught this first. So I'm not gonna trust psychology yet before I understand what taught this at large. At large. I well, I think you need some time for the disciplines to develop and develop their own methods. Because, for example, if you said, okay, is a scientific method a good way of finding out about the world? Mm -hmm. And you said, we have to answer that question before we allow science to happen. Like, the original point stands, you wouldn't know what the scientific method is because you haven't let science flourish, right? And then the only way to test that kind of method is to say, does it work case by case basis? And then we kind of, you know, evolve things as we go. So you need some cases. If you want some cases, you have to allow for it to happen. Now, you can't you can say, okay, I'm not going to trust it. But then again, so many researchers would say, look, if you ask them, like, do you really believe what you're researching? They would say, well, I don't know. Like, it's, it works within the paradigm that I have so far, and that paradigm seems to be a good one. But, you know, some of the best researchers can be very skeptical of, of what they're actually doing. Um, this, this happens especially when it comes to theoretical research. Like, if you're say a, a doctor say an oncologist who's curing cancer or something and you see the, the like the the rates of of survival go up then you kind of know that you're doing something good that it's not yes. completely independent of the world you know um but that's a, asking whether say your your cancer treatment is successful is a different question from asking whether you think that your theory is true because yes. there's a whole load of assumptions going into asking whether your theory is true about like how does it correspond to the world? Is the world actually like that? Is it just like a, a representation of something that could, in actual fact, look very different? So I think when it comes to those theoretical questions of whether your theory is actually true, it's perfectly fine to be very skeptical. But the thing is, you, you can't say that that skepticism stops you from doing the research. You let the research carry on, and then you, you kind of reflect momentarily on that as it's happening, because otherwise you don't know what you're reflecting on. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, that's cool. I think this is also how, uh, I forget what the article is called, but how people, like different approaches to dealing with skepticism, so we just want to de- deny all the knowledge, then there's a two kind of distinct ways we can deal with it. We can say, no, we kind of, uh, I think this is called Methodist, we kind of know how we get knowledge, so given our knowledge of the methodology, we can get particular facts and that's the way we build up our knowledge. You can also do it the other way around and say, well, maybe we don't know how to get knowledge, but we know these kind of things. This is like the more I have a hand, I know this for sure kind of line. And from that, I'm gonna build up the methodology based on those particular facts. And then I can start getting more facts. I think this is kind of similar to that. Okay, you could say that there's some kind of paradox in there about uh, well, I don't think it's a much of a problem, but it could be a paradox of you want to know how your method works and whether it's good before you apply it. But mm-hmm. then in order to know what is good, you have to have the method like actually in practice and then see how it's working. Um, but that doesn't seem like so much of a problem because if you take the solution of just you let everything happen at once and then it doesn't have to, you don't need any priority here. Maybe that's why talk of fundamentality among disciplines is kind of not the best way of talking. 
because you want to say that they're all kind of developing in their own way with their own you know uh, interesting goals this is nice also what uh, not many people may know is that Dean and I already taped the podcast episode <laughs> on reductionism but it got lost in the cloud somewhere very unfortunately uh, but yeah this kind of ties in nicely with that uh, because it's not what I would like to call the most fundamental research that we should produce everything to them they're kind of they should develop both at the same time at their own pace yeah and co- cooperate like is it is it fundamental if you're like is your view of the world fundamental if you're in a plane really high up looking down at all the all the cows and all the the cars that are just these tiny specks on the ground it's not so fundamental right but th- that's kind of how metaphysics use physics right you're up in this you're you're up at the plane and then very far away you see this results going on but then you don't understand all the details you don't understand the mathematics the modeling sure. whatever but you just take the general outline and say yeah well it kind of looks like this so the thing is if you then from your high horse like from high mm-hmm. up in the plane yeah. think okay i have the authority and the fundamentality here then you don't know the world in all its detail mm-hmm. and you, you know it really is very arrogant of you to say that you've got somehow conceptual priority or methodological priority here because you don't know the details you you know a bigger picture you know someone from on the ground like driving on the little highway doesn't have the view that you have but you don't have their view either so I think it's better maybe to be <laughs> a bit like not judgy about this, yeah, that yeah, yeah. Pe- different people can have different folky, folky like different uh, subjects mm-hmm. and interests and goals and they're all evolving together and sometimes they split off into different disciplines and it's not as if one is like feeding them all. Um, I Yeah, like there's a quote from Kant when he says that like metaphysics which he didn't view so favorably because he thought if you try and go beyond human cognition, you're going to end up talking nonsense mm-hmm. because we can never access that, right? Um, he says, well, metaphysics is the handmaiden of the sciences. So he said, okay, well, it has this auxiliary view, which is just to kind of maybe tidy up some things to get some conceptual uh, hygiene going on, clean, clean things up a bit, but it's not going to produce anything new itself. You can disagree. You can think that there are more substantial questions going on in these disciplines um, but to say it's a handmaiden is very different from saying that it is like the boss you yes know? yeah I don't know maybe a handmaiden can be a boss in some households that'd be cool not in traditional ones at least yeah so I don't know if there's much of a problem or a paradox or whatever going on with this view of discipline now, the funny thing is like I think coming back to the, the original like question of semantic paradoxes and stuff, so we know that there are all these problems about having a full theory of truth, like being able to talk unrestrictedly in a way that satisfies the nice principles that we have. For example, we know that because of the diagonal lemma, you could never have a formal theory of truth that validates all like everything you would want about truth, including that like its principles are compositional so that you know if it's true that a sentence, if a sentence S is true and a sentence uh, Q is true, then the conjunction S and Q is also true. Um, and and like well, you could, you could have that in your theory if you want as well. You could also have that, um, like a theory is, like a sentence is true if and only if the sentence holds. 
So that's like saying, well, snow is white is a true sentence if and only if snow is indeed white. Yeah. Um, so you would never be able to get a formal theory that gives you all of these things um, because of the diagonal lemma. You could just immediately invoke the, the, the liar paradox, the, well, the liar sentence, like L if and only if it's not true that L. So you can never have everything. And that we use truth all the time like in our meta language, like when we were just talking to each other in Dutch, in English, whatever. So it's funny that all these problems that we have with this notion work so seamlessly in other fields. Like you would think, okay, if we can never have a formal theory of truth that satisfies all the nice conditions we want, then there's something corrupt in the state of truth. Yeah. You know? But that, that's not how it works because you see all these other researchers saying, hey, your theory is true, or I think your theory needs more work before I can call it true, or whatever. And then it doesn't seem to be that the same problems are coming up. So yeah, maybe that's, that's, maybe that's a, a case of some kind of independence between disciplines. But then it, it is kind of funny that we have all these problems with fundamental notions that we take for granted, right? So would you, uh, would you think that this is like a plea for paraconsistent logics as opposed to classical logics in which contradictions just blow up everything? Okay, yeah. so uh, like uh, as opposed to classical logic, a paraconsistent logic is one that doesn't have a rule called x false so quadly bit. And is that the same as that they call explosion? Yeah, explosion. Maybe explosion is a cooler name. Yeah, it's like some kind of diehard film. So, um, uh, explosions is a, a a rule of classical logic that's that works for classical logic, which is the logic that mathematicians use um, that has developed over you know centuries. That many people that took a logic class once probably were introduced. Yeah, it's the first logic you'd be introduced to if you did a formal logic class. So. Um, this rule of explosion says that if you have a contradiction, then you can infer any premise. Yes. Or any conclusion, sorry. So if you have, you know, the, you know, snow is white and snow is not white, if you have that contradiction, then from that, you can infer that the moon is made of blue cheese. Yes. You know? So anything, and it, it doesn't have to be relevant, it doesn't have to be connected in any way, just any sentence whatsoever. So paraconsistent logic say, okay, well, this is really weird that you have no connection between the premises and the conclusion here and especially because there there is some paradoxical phenomena that we're aware of and if we allow that in then we end up making everything true mm -hmm. and then you don't trust your logic anymore because it's it's what it tells you is so cheap yeah. it just says oh well you know ask me a question and i'll tell you yes <laughs> you know that's not a great very informative thing to have no it's like if you imagine you had a google where you go you ask a question and then it always tells you the answer is yes you know you're like like i don't know you could ask like is barack obama king of uh, the united states and then it would say yes barack obama is king of the united states well actually that actually happened but that's a separate thing no, so um so what you could what you could do is get rid of that explosion thing by redefining some of your connectives as changing the logic in a suitable way and then you don't have this problem of explosion anymore. So maybe you could admit like localized instances of a paradox, but then that doesn't cheapen like the theorems of your logic because everything else works as normal. Yeah. Like you could say it's only in some cases that we get this problem of not being able to use explosion, for example, like when these conditions are satisfied and then you isolate what those conditions are and then you learn more about the thing you're dealing with, the paradoxes. So I don't know if 
like the paradoxes are a plea for power consistent logic or if if that's uh, like I don't, I don't know what it would mean for a good way of going about paradoxes to be like you kind of want to just learn how they behave or whatever and see what's possible and what's not um yeah i'm still waiting to see whether we could have like our cake and eat it when it comes to paradoxes like whether we could say that we are able to satisfy all these nice principles in a formal theory, say one that we understand, like a formal language, and then uh, without generating all these paradoxes. Because it seems that there are definite problems on that, especially as soon as the diagonal lemma that we talked about earlier comes in. Um, so I really just want to un understand them. And then if someone says, no, my goal is to really solve the problem. Well, I don't think there's so much of a problem here. Like it doesn't, it, it does affect other issues, but it's, it is kind of like the paradoxes are kind of local to this particular study of philosophical logic. Obviously, there are some cases where it has more application, like um, there is a problem of like a problem of vagueness, and then you have Sarita's paradox, which is like trying to draw a sharp boundary from a vague predicate. Um, but I know you've been working on a lot of kind of making these paradoxes more applicable, mm -hmm. so that they're not just these formal tools that have no bearing on everyday life. Yeah. Yeah, like can you give an example of when you were trying to apply these paradoxes to everyday life? Yeah, so in the book uh, I use Sorin's paradox in the first chapter. Uh, so the, the idea of the book is called Practical Paradoxes, Philosophical Paradoxes Applied to Everyday Problems. And so the, the main thing, there, like there's a couple of reasons uh, to write this book. First of all, paradoxes are super fun, super fascinating, and even philosophers, most philosophers don't know a lot about them. Like there are three paradoxes in the book, in the book and one is the two envelope paradox. Most philosophers I speak to never heard of. So people need to read more about paradoxes. Um, now, the second reason, which is really nice, is that these paradoxes are indeed kind of particular to philosophical logic which is, of course, one of the most abstract things there is. But they don't need to be. Like, you can, you can use them readily in your everyday life pretty easily. So, for example, the, the Sorides paradox, the classic presentation is with the heap of sand. Sorides is the ancient Greek word for heap. Uh, so, you have this big pile of sand and you say, okay, this one has like a million grains of sand, so clearly it's a heap. And then you have the second premise. If you have a heap of sand and you take a one grain of sand, it's still a heap. Because one grain of sand never makes a difference between a heap and a non-heap. Now you can debate that if you want to, but it's kind of, it's like super plausible. One grain of sand never really makes a difference. So then you take a one grain and you say it's still a heap, and another one, still a heap. And you keep doing that until you have nothing left. And supposedly it's still a heap because all you did was take a one. Now, it's not super practical yet because who's gonna like who are you gonna fool with this with this heap of sand thing? Like why would you even do this? But uh, one nice example is so students love this example. I think it's one that people actually kind of use already within their own life and it and it messes them up. So this is one that you need to stop. Uh, I can have one beer and it's kind of fine, right? Like one beer is not too many beers. And I could say, well, if n beers is not too many, 
n plus one beers is also not too many because it's just one beer more. Maybe if you're kind of sensitive to alcohol, don't take a full beer here, but say if I had n beers and I take one more sip, still kind of fine. And then you get the exact same reasoning pattern. So, oh, I take another sip, oh, it's still fine. Now I can take another sip, it's still fine. Until you're shit-faced drunk, lying on the on the on your courtyard somewhere at the end of the night. So this is one I think people actually use. This is why it's kind of hard to control how much you drink and why it's so easy to drink too much. Uh, and this one is one that you should clearly stop. And you can use all kind of philosophical. Uh, what is it, instruments to stop it. So in the Sorry This Paradox, you have this uh, discussion of whether there are sharp boundaries within reality, or within thought, or within language. Like, it's super hard to figure out where the sharp boundaries would be. But if you get a sharp boundary somewhere, then for the heap example, you should say, well, no, actually, a thousand grains of sand is a heap, everything under that is not. So that second premise you gave us, if you take a one grain of sand, it's always the heap. It's just not true. Because if you go from 1,000 to 999, it's not a heap anymore. In the heap case, it's not very plausible. In the beer case, maybe. Like, you would definitely want to convince yourself that there's a sharp boundary where you should stop. Because you don't, then you don't get drunk all the time. So, you can look, you, you can go start looking for them. For example, in the law. I don't know what it is in Ireland, but in the Netherlands, I think you can have like 0.24 promil of alcohol in your blood, and after that you can't drive anymore. It's it's illegal. So you might say, okay, well there's a sharp line between too many beers and not too many. It's too many if I can get arrested for driving my car. So you plug in the sharp boundary, and now that thing that you kept saying, ah, I can take another sip, it's no problem. It's not true anymore. So that's why you can stop. There's also good applications of the Sorry's Paradox. A really easy one is, suppose I want to get up an hour early. Uh, so if I try to do that at once, it's too much, can't do it. I set my alarm an hour earlier, wake up super tired. So it just smooths for an hour. Uh, what is easier is to set it one minute earlier. So the Sorry, this kind of reasoning here is, suppose I normally get up at nine. Getting up at nine is not too early. If getting up at x o'clock is not too early, x o'clock minus one minute is also not too early. Seems reasonable. And then you just work your way down for a full hour. And then you can get up early and it's going to be fine. So what do you think Like, we can learn from these really abstract examples how to live? in daily situations or that. Yeah, I think they tell you a lot more than philosophers usually give paradoxes credit for. Okay, and do you think this is another example of how maybe this kind of highly abstract, idealized thinking from philosophy could be like helpful for people if they wanted to figure out some problems of their daily life? Or Yeah, definitely. Like, I expect the story this one might be one of the most useful ones for people to realize because it's, it's basically just a general slippery slope thing that is brought up always in politics and in whatever, in behavior. So it's very good to be aware of this, this form of reasoning, this slippery slope, and also to be aware of what kind of things can stop it. So sharp boundaries can really stop it. Another thing that can really stop it is just full abstinence, which is something that is sometimes reasonable, but not always. So for example, I myself don't drink anymore. 
because I'm not convinced by the sharp boundary of the legal limit because I can't drive anywhere. So what I need to do is say, no, you know what, one beer is too many. I'm, I'm going to have zero beers. Yeah, so you don't drink because of the Surrey's paradox. Yes. Yeah. Well, kind of honestly, yes, because I know that if I start drinking, there's no reason, especially once I started drinking and I'm under the influence, I'm going to get convinced even easier by yeah, this type of reasoning. Yeah, and I know there's no stopping it. So just to say, yeah. okay, abstinence. Yeah, because you don't want to have to deal with those philosophical problems. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like a nice way of ignoring the problem is to just say, well, I denied the premise at the beginning for myself. Yeah. I guess there's this old tradition where people would say, look, like philosophy makes you live a better life. Mm-hmm. And when you look at philosophy as it is practiced today, especially in uh, English-speaking philosophy departments um, that aren't really, con- like, well, obviously ethics is a big part of it, but for these other things like philosophical logic, you know, people would say, look, there's not really any way that you can have that old idea of philosophy making your life better, you know, mm-hmm. being a kind of wise person who knows yeah. how to live and how to apply knowledge to life. Um, you know, the old idea is that what philosophy etymologically means love of wisdom. And then I guess the old idea is that wisdom is this kind of knowledge about how to apply your theoretical knowledge like to practical situations. But that seems to, like, when it comes to the discussions about philosophical logic so far, that seems to kind of, that wisdom part has kind of got lost. Yeah. And you're kind of just looking for complete theoretical knowledge without any practical application whatsoever. So maybe you're, like, reviving this old philosophical... It would be fantastic. Even within ethics nowadays, since we focus so much on isolating intuitions with trolley problems and such, it isn't as much anymore about what we should do in everyday life. I think it aims to be like that, but sometimes you have to think very slowly yeah, and really true. consider things step by step. It, but the thing is, you could say, well, there are many other discussions that in most of life, you don't get that kind of luxury of being able to think so slowly, like where you're able to consider everything in such a considerate way um, that it's kind of nice that we have this, uh, this, uh, this field where people are taking that so slow. And then... You could say, well, if you if you want to like look at more practical situations, I don't know, talk to your your peer group, talk to your family, you know, and then you can ask about what is good and stuff. But if you want to do it in a, the most systematic way possible, then you should talk to us, you know. Um, but it's kind of cool to see how the the applications would uh, come in as would come in as well. It's, like it's really funny that you would think that like the best way. Well, maybe you have. A, I'm sure you have other reasons for avoiding alcohol as well. But like the the idea that you should you don't want to get into a philosophical problem and that you should change your life so that you don't you avoid philosophical problems and then that means that you shouldn't drink that's just amazing that that would have that so practical the, consequence the, the philosophical problems tend to lead to real life problems and, that, and that's the main reason like the main yeah. effective reason how to do it yeah but so. that, that, that's another good insight like that, and I've, I've, yeah is this true generally probably right philosophical problems lead to real life problems I think this is often true a lot of philosophical problems relate to unclarity and like not properly distinguishing between certain issues. And that can definitely get you mixed up and in, in trouble. Yeah, I think that's true. Hmm. Yeah, there are a few other paradoxes, I guess, out there as well. Um, like, can you think of any of the other paradoxes that we talked about and how they can be applied? Maybe not to stop drinking or whatever, but some other upshot, you know? Uh, yeah. So, 
well, let me think, the liar paradox I also use, and I use it to tackle the problem of quitting smoking, so maybe that's a bit similar to the drinking thing. Might be like my health science and background <laughs> that gets these things in there. But there, so the liar paradox, uh, I, was, I was stressing to you, like, what other instantiations did you find? Because I think that uh, a lot of real-life problems are also instantiations of not exactly the liar paradox, but of the same kind of vicious circle. Uh, and I think the, the problem of quitting smoking is one of them. I won't go into detail into that now because people still need to buy my book. Um, okay. Once it comes out. <laughs> yeah, you can give away all your trade secrets. No, exactly. But uh, yeah, other things that are... Um, applicable in real life. So I use the probability paradoxes. Probability paradoxes are also really cool. Mm -hmm. uh, let, let me introduce one of them, because it's funny. Do, do you know the St. Petersburg paradox? No, no. Okay, so it's a game. Uh, it's a wager. Like imagine I have a casino and this is the game I host. So it's a game and you're gonna uh, need to bet with other people so that you can play the game because it's going to be like a profitable game and you have to set your wager. The game is the following. Uh, I'm going to flip a coin and if it lands heads, I'll give you two euro. Uh, if it lands tails, then I'm going to flip again. And if it then lands heads, I'll give you four euro. Uh, in general, like the amount of times it lands tails before it lands heads, your payment increases. You always get paid on the heads, and for every time it landed tails before that, your payment doubles. So it's like 2, 4, 8, 60. And now you have to figure out, okay, what's the maximum amount of money that I want to pay to be able to engage in this wager? Do you want to try to think about it? Okay, so I give an original wager, and then if it's tails, it doubles it. No, um, you give any wager yeah. and initial payout is 2 euro mm -hmm. and it gets doubled every time it lands tails. Okay, so I can set my own to make it like max, like the expected value. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, it seems like every time it lands tails it's going up. Yeah. So, I guess... Well, the thing is, it's kind of difficult to compare because you've got some two and some four and some eight or whatever going up. But then, on the other hand, if you just keep it going tails, it doesn't have any end point. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just, it's just going on forever and th there's no point at which you could say, okay, that's the maximum. It's not as if you say, okay, after 100 tails, I'm going to stop. Yeah. You know, it's kind of, theoretically, it, you know, it could go on forever. Mm -hmm. So, like, what you're trying to do is compare, okay, so we have this forever outcome in the yeah. background and then we also have two four eight yeah. so i don't know maybe you could bet like any high amount of money and then it would be it would make sense because you would you would have like this it could go on for you you, you always get if you keep on getting tails <laughs> if you keep on getting tails then does is this like how can you compare like this arbitrary infinity like this thing that it doesn't really have any concrete material value with these twos and these fours and these eights that you get from heads yeah it's kind of incommensurable you know so i'd say i i think any amount of money would all be, your money mm, but then if i get tails on the first one if i get heads on the first one i get two euro yes so 
I, I can't, I don't know, because it's like, it's, 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 trying to, it's trying to compare like infinity and these little lines, you know? So I'll, I'll know. give you the, the game theory answer that was like given in the paper that proposed this problem. Okay. Uh, people at home can try to write with me. So you have a 50% chance that you just get heads right away and you get two euro. Yeah. So your expected value of this is your probability times your outcome. So that's half times two is one euro mm -hmm. for that option. Then you also have the option that you get tails once and then get heads. That's 25% of the time. Uh, and then you get four euro. So that's 25% times four euro is Expected one euro. value of one. And this is true for every option. And as you correctly pointed out, there's unlimited of these. So your expected value is infinite euro. So any amount is reasonable to bet on this thing. And the, the author of the original paper is super funny because he says this, he introduces the whole concept and says, so game theory-wise, it's rational to bet any amount, but I think that if someone proposed to me today, I would bet 28 euros at best. <laughs> 28, okay. Like, at most. And that's already stretching it because half the time you just get to feel so bad. So um, this is also a paradox. Uh, and maybe it's good to talk a bit about what kind of paradoxes there are and it's not really what kind, but where do they reside? Or what do you have to give up to solve them? The liar paradox is really problematic because it attacks truth. If you, like the quickest way to solve it is just say, well, I don't believe in truth anyway, so I don't care whether the sentence is true or false. But you don't want to say that because you like truth a lot. Here, what you might say, if you're not an economist, well, I don't like game theory. I don't think that's a good way to calculate values. So I don't buy anything you say right now. That's still kind of problematic because game theory is really useful in economics, but it's definitely less bothersome than giving up on truth. But that's the reason why this is, so this is maybe not a philosophical paradox, it's like a game theory paradox. And you can... But you want to say that there are right answers for what is, it is rational to do in a given scenario, yeah? Yeah, but what kind of rational, right? Like, do you accept game theory rational as a good sense of rational? Well, you should say that the expected value should be defined for a game like that, yeah? Because the expected value is still in. Because the thing is, I guess it's, it's really difficult because, like, is it possible for the, there to be... It's... Like, it's not in real life possible for you to have an infinite series of heads, I mean tails, for this game. Not um, infinite, but like... What you could do is go on arbitrarily finitely many. So, you know, every time you flip, you could always flip one more or whatever. Mm -hmm. But at some point, you have to go home. <laughs> um, because it's getting dark, you know, and you're flipping a coin in, at 4 a.m. in the middle of a logic center, and it's like something's wrong with your life, you know. So, um, at some point, it it won't it'll have to end. So if you if you be boring and add in these like constraints of like what's practical, then you know that there will be a point at which you want to go home, and that you'll have to stop. So then I haven't thought about this one yet. The usual like kind of practical boring uh, thing people gave us an objection is well, there's no infinite amount of money, but then you say okay, let me get this money press, and we're <laughs> just gonna keep making more so that we can pay you up. Against this one, I don't have such an, such an immediate response. Are there like quantum computers that can do calculations with 
no time or something? <laughs> no. <laughs> like people have this funny, like have these theoretical uh, thought experiments where they say, oh, imagine we got a computer and we put it at the event horizon of a black hole. <laughs> Because the the cl- <laughs> the closer you get to a, a black hole, the the like the slower, so to speak, time goes for you, because there's so much force of gravity on you. Um, so then the thing is, if you're away from the black hole, then you know it could be that this, like in a way, the computer kind of has more time to do calculations, because you know every time like you know one moment or whatever passes for them. Um, it's not. It's not a full moment. Like every time, many moments pass for them. It's not a full moment for you. Obviously, simultaneity isn't defined here because you're in different reference yeah. frames. Um, so it's. It, I can't say anything further than these moments because how do you measure like yeah. what one second is in this? Um, obviously, you have light speed. Um, but then they say, okay, look, we have some problems of computation that are unsolvable, like um, the halting problem. Yeah. So there are these problems that we know if we were able to solve them, then like our compu- computability theory would be inconsistent, and we don't want that. And we, know. so you you, the idea is that you put the the computer, the Turing machine, at the event horizon of a black hole where it has, <laughs> so, you know, in the thought experiment, infinitely long to carry out the calculation and then you ask it somehow communicating with a, a computer at the, uh, on an event horizon you ask it okay what's the answer to the halting problem and then supposedly like in this funny thought experiment which is not so serious um, you would be able to get an answer back because it's been able to do infi- like the, the calculation infinitely long and then finish because it's got like infinitely more time than you have you know so one second for you is infinite seconds for it, you know, if you can measure seconds between them, of course you can't. Um, yeah, so that, that's, that's the funny thing as well, maybe related to this yeah. idea. So we should set up infinite. the Hat-Tails simulator, the Cointos simulator, at the event horizon. Yeah. And then it can finish its run. Well, well, from our perspective down on, down on Earth, yeah. which is away from the event horizon, then, yeah, we, we can look at that and see its results. So. Um, but of course, it's no fun if you just impose all these restrictions. No, it's not really the point of the. Yeah, because the problem is you've been able to design an experiment, like in theory at least, because, like, the probability that it finishes is, is is, almost one, like infinitesimally yeah. close to one, yeah. because one. there's only yeah li- limit one because there's only an infinitesimal chance if you believe infinitesimal chances are well defined, that you get an infinite that you get continuous tails going on forever yeah. obviously probability theory was not meant to handle no. infinity but then why not generalize you know this is uh yeah this is cool because chalmers wrote uh david chalmers the philosopher wrote a paper called the st petersburg two envelope paradox or the other way around i forgot but the two envelope paradox is another paradox one that i do discuss in the book and it has a similar kind of thing that you have an infinite expected value. And he groups these two together because they share this, the infinite expected value, and he says, hey, intuitions just break down for that. And probability theory does too. So we need someone to come up with a more general probability theory that handles infinite cases. Because the current one doesn't doesn't go. Yeah, you would hope that there are some determinate answers about what's the best 
theory of infinite probabilities to have. Maybe it involves, a lot of people think it involves infinitesimal probabilities as well. So infinite, like it's, it's smaller than any number that you can come up with, but still not zero, like still bigger than zero. Um, if you're if you're between zero and one, and say you have the the probabilities that you can assign are real values, mm -hmm. you know, um, you want to allow for a probability of pi, for example. Mm -hmm. If you imagine, I don't know, you have a, a circle and then you drop yeah. things on the circle. Um, so you idealize and say that you have like real men, like continuum many. Uh, probabilities and then you say okay we allow for infinitesimal probabilities where there's a probability that is less than any real number and still greater than zero so it's like there are more numbers than what the real numbers have some people think that's weird because they think look like the real numbers if you have a real number line how could you fit any more numbers on the line mm -hmm. because it's it's continuous like whenever you take any kind of set of real numbers um, then it well, there's this notion of called Dedekind completeness. So if you take a set of real numbers, if it has, if it's tending towards some bound, mm -hmm. like if, if it has a, an upper bound, then it has a least upper bound, like in the real numbers. So it's like, it's like no numbers are missing by any yeah. property that you can define yeah. using the ordering of real numbers. And then some people say, how could you have more? Of course you could always have more. Why not? Like we, we have mathematical formalisms to develop that, like infinitesimals, and that's really cool. Um, so I, d I don't know. I don't buy these objections that like these infinitesimal probabilities don't fit on the on the real number line. We just say that there we know what they would be like mathematically, so it's okay. Infinitesimals are even less uh, intuitive than just infinities, though, right? Would you agree? No, I think no. they're equally unintuitive. Well, I think they're kind of nice, so <laughs> maybe you're asking the wrong guy. Um, <laughs> both completely intuitive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Equally unintuitive, which means both intuitive. Yeah. Um, no, but like also just like intuitively, so you have something that's infinitely small. Yeah. And you're like... Why is that different uh, from being infinitely big? So... Why is that weirder? Yeah, why is it? Like... If you okay. say, well, you can't grab something that's infinitely small, you know, you can't have it. Well, you can't have something that's infinitely big either, you know. I think any argument... Maybe, it, maybe it's just that, you, that I get used to infinity small. But so, you say it's infinitely small, and then I think, but why can't I make it smaller? Well, I guess because the notions of it being smaller isn't well-defined when you're talking about infinitesimals. I had this discussion in uh, episode 5 that I still need to release with Victor. Oh, cool. And as far as uh, theoretical physics go, the Planck length is the smallest thing yeah. that we can talk about. Mm -hmm. So could you could you just define that to be the smallest thing or do you really need oh, that's, like that's a mathematical thing that's way small? You'd need mathematical things because you can actually define the length like of the Planck length by starting out from something that you understand, like centimeters. Mm -hmm. And then you say, okay, well, if th the centimeter has a specific ratio to the Planck length, okay? Yeah. So what, what you're dealing with is, is ratios between lengths here. Uh, now the whole, with the but the problem is exactly, like there's this principle called the Archimedean principle, or properties of numbers that have this are called Archimedean properties. And that's where any two numbers have a ratio between them. 
So you can always say that this is twice the size of this, this is five billion times the size of this. There's always a ratio yeah. for Archimedean things. So the real numbers are Archimedean in the sense that they always have a ratio. You could say, well, if you were to multiply this by itself, you know, however many times, then you will get yeah. higher than the original number, yeah? yeah? But infinitesimals don't work like this, so you don't have a ratio between them. So when you were saying, okay, look, this number should be smaller, like, how could you imagine a smaller infinitesimal number? Well, then what you're doing is trying to compare ratios where ratios don't belong. Mm. So that's why people say that, like, you have what are called non-Archimedean fields. Okay. So, like, you satisfy some of the field, the field axioms, but you don't have this Archimedean property of having a ratio between all the numbers. So I can't ask how many infinitesimals you need to add up to get one. You could never add up infinitesimals to get one. Never. Not even to get the smallest real number, <laughs> you know, there's no smallest real number, but there are, for every real number there's a smaller one, yeah? Yeah. But you could never add up like infinitesimals to get one of those real numbers. You know, you could never add up infinitesimals. Well, infinite well th what does it mean to add up, I guess you can try and add up something infinite times as well, that's okay. But I was imagining you just do it finitely many times, because that's what a ratio would be. Yeah, like a ratio is expressed as a fraction, yeah? Yeah, yeah, and that happens in the in the rational number, so it's not, yeah. But it's, yeah, probability poses some interesting problems that do have direct application because you want to say, look, this is what you should believe, this is what you should do. Another paradox that we can talk about as well is the sleep, Sleeping Beauty paradox. Oh yeah, if you want as well, that's a, another one related to probability. Um, it's a it's a pretty funny one that has only come up recently. So what you do is. You imagine that you have Sleeping Beauty mm -hmm. and then you're going to run this kind of freaky, weird experiment. So like on Sunday night, you explain this, this scenario to Sleeping Beauty. She's in her tower, you know, yeah. hanging out. And then you Door say... for Dutch people. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, so uh, she's, Sleeping Beauty is in her tower and then uh, you say the experiment is that on tonight we're going to give you a potion that makes you, like a sleeping potion that makes you fall asleep. And then... Uh, before that we're going to flip a coin and you're not going to know the result of the coin flip but if the coin land, lands heads then we're going to let you sleep all the way through Monday and only wake you up on Tuesday okay. okay and then when we wake you up on Tuesday we'll ask you what's your credence like your probability what's your belief in the probability that the coin landed heads and then if when we flip the coin on Saturday or on, on Sunday afternoon it lands tails, we're going to wake you up on Monday as well. And then when we wake you up on Monday, we're going to ask you, okay, what's your credence that the coin landed uh, heads? And then what we're going to do is give you a sleeping potion again, but this time one that erases your memory. So there's some fancy alchemy going on here. So, and then she's going to like erase her memory, go to sleep again, and then they're going to wake her up on Tuesday. Okay. So the situation is they flip a coin, uh, on s Sunday afternoon for heads or tails. Then they explain the experiment to Sleeping Beauty and they say, okay, if the coin turned up heads, we're only going to wake you up on Tuesday. If the coin landed tails, we're going to wake you up on Monday and Tuesday. Mm -hmm. What makes this interesting is that from Sleeping Beauty's perspective, we say that the difference between her waking up on Monday and Tuesday is c can't be seen by her. So we imagine that there's no like alarm clock with a yeah, date sure. on it. There's no calendar keeping track of the dates on, in her bedroom or whatever. There's just, so when, when she wakes up, she doesn't know what day it is. That's the essential part. Yeah. Okay, so if it turns out that it actually landed tails and they wake her up on 
Monday, she doesn't know whether she was already woken up before, whether it's Tuesday, and when they wake her up on Tuesday, she doesn't like she doesn't know whether she's woken up before because she doesn't know whether she's in Monday, Tuesday, whatever, um, whether she was woken up before or not. So then the question is: so every time we wake Sleeping Beauty up, we ask, "What's your credence that the coin landed heads?" And then the answer or the question is: What do you think would be the best or most rational answer for Sleeping Beauty to give? To that question. Yeah, what's what should be Sleeping Beauty's credence, like her belief in the probability that the coin came up heads? Okay. Can I can I can I try that? Yeah, of course, yeah. Okay, so two conflicting intuitions I have right now. First one, it's a coin toss, so it's fifty fifty. That's the first intuition. Just fifty fifty. Why are you even asking me this? You know the probability of a coin toss. Come on. Second one is, okay, so I've just been woken up, so it can be either Monday or Tuesday. So if it's Monday, then it was tails. If it is Tuesday, then 50% of the time it was tails. So I get like the 50% that I get from it being a coin toss, if it's Tuesday, but I get the extra chance that it's just a Monday now. And that's gonna amount to a third. So it can also be a third, because there's like there's three days that I can be, or three situations in which I can be woken up. Monday tails, Tuesday tails, or Tuesday heads. And only one of these three situations involves heads. So then it should be a third. But I honestly don't know how these two intuitions of mine should be resolved. Which one, which which is the good? Yeah, no, th- th- that's exactly the um, the two answers that the literature is focused on so far. So they've divided them up into two camps called the halfers, who think that it should be a half, and the thirders who think they should be a third. So the halfers, their intuition is that look, it's a coin toss exactly as you said. So it's just fifty fifty tails heads because when you wake her up, like the coin toss happened the, like yesterday. So nothing that you do in later on in the experiment should affect the results of something that already happened. We don't have like any retro causation or any weird stuff going on here. So it's like the coin toss already happened, that is fixed. So if the coin toss has a probability of um, a half before the experiment begins, like why should, why should that change? And the thing is Sleeping Beauty knows how the experiment is designed because you explained it to her on Sunday evening. So when she wakes up, even though she doesn't know what day it is, she does know how the experiment works. So then she knows, well, it was a coin and that's how coins are. They're fair, whatever, half. And now the thirders say, yeah, but when you ask her the question, it's a different context from just the coin flip like naturally occurring. Because when you ask her the question, the fact that you ask her the question is not independent of the coin toss. Because when you ask her the question, that was dependent like if you ask her the question twice or ask her the question once, that depends on the result of the coin toss. So the thing is, they say, well, what we're dealing with is subjective probability here. So the probability for sleeping beauty upon being asked the question. And they say, well, look, upon being asked the question is a context that is dependent on the result of the coin toss. Whether they ask the question twice, if it's tails, or once, if it's heads, that depends on the coin. uh, there are still a, a few people who think the half should be the definite answer, but I think the the consensus is kind of converging to saying it should be a third, because of the reasons I outlined. So, when you 
ask the question. You're not asking the question in a completely neutral environment. You're yeah. asking it dependent on the coin toss. Now, some people have tried to kind of develop some morals from this, some lessons. What do we learn about probability? Like, what, what can we ta- what's the ta- take-home lesson? Um, some people think, well, subject, we, we know the subjective probability is related to knowledge, like how much you know about the situation. So some people say, well, what Sleeping Beauty learns when she's asked the question is like that she's being asked the question. And they come up with, okay, is this a reasonable lesson to take home from the Sleeping Beauty if you're a thirder, if you think that the probability that its heads is a, should be a third in, uh, in her answer. Um, and then they come up with, okay, so what does this tell us about the relation between subjective probability and knowledge or about being in a given scenario versus being in a more objective, like overhead scenario? Yeah, so it's, it's a good paradox. Maybe we shouldn't call it a paradox so much now because there is so much consensus about yeah. The way it should be, a th- uh, the answer should be a third rather than a half. So it's just a thought experiment. So it's just like a very interesting, cool feature of subjective probability that we've managed to isolate. Okay. So maybe we've kind of gone from it being a paradox to being just an interesting feature. So I'm going to ask you one now. That, so I think the answer is super clear, but apparently there's half the people that disagree with me. Oh, I can't okay. figure out why. Okay, what's this one? Newcomb's problem. It's not even, it's sometimes called Newcomb's paradox, but I think by people like me, it's just Newcomb's problem. Okay, because it's solved. Yeah, it's definitely solved. Okay, so uh, people, again, if you're at home and you have pen and paper, uh, write with me. It's a fun one, I think. Uh, so you are in, um, let's call it an experiment. It's a super easy experiment. There. So first, I'll ask you a really easy question. I think. Yes. So there's two boxes. I'm the experimenter. There's box A and box B. First question should be really easy. In box A, there is a thousand euros. In box B, there is either zero euros or there's a million euros. Would you like? Box A or box A and B? <laughs> box A and B? Yes, because then you get the thousand euros and maybe... A, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Expected value of half a million, let's say. Yeah, exactly. So easy. Yeah. Um, now, the, now the more problematic situation. Same setup, box A contains a thousand euro, box B contains a million euro or zero euro, depending on... Uh, I hired a personal investigator, personal detective, to study you for uh, the past month. And I asked her to predict whether you're a one-boxer or a (laughs) two-boxer. If you're a one-boxer, then she put in a million in box B. If you're a two-boxer, you put in... Oh, no, sorry, I, uh, I explained it all wrong. The question in the first scenario is, do you want box B or box A and B? So you can choose the one with zero or a million, or the one with zero or a million and the one with I'll still take uh, yeah. both boxes, thank still you. Still take both. Now, in the second scenario, if you're a one boxer, she put in a million. Okay. If you're a two boxer, she put in zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's accurate with, let's say, 90%. Okay. She gets it right 90% of the time. Yes, that works. So, um, 
If she predicted you're a one boxer, she put in a million. Mm -hmm. Do you want only box B or do you want box A and B now, given this personal detective? Okay, so I was a two boxer before. So Well, not with like a new situation. Oh, a new situation. Wait, so is she evaluating whether I'm a two boxer in this situation? Or in this one? Or in, in, this, in this one. In the situation, the second situation. Yeah, so second experiment, forget all about the first one, that yeah. was just to make you understand the scenario. Brand new experiment. In box B, there's zero or a million. Mm -hmm. In box A, there's still a thousand, for sure. Okay. And the experimenter put in a million if the personal detective predicted yeah. that you're a one box. Okay. So, let's see. I, I just want to imagine the personal detective going through my thought process. Like before the thing, so she would have said, "Okay, look." So he he would have thought, "Okay, well, if I I am a one boxer, well then I'm gonna uh put in if if it's if I'm one boxer, she puts in the million in the B, yeah, yeah. Okay, so then then that would be I would think that's a good idea. Now, if I go for both boxes A and B. Well then, she won't put in anything, so I'll just get a thousand, not a million. Mm -hmm. So then, it would seem more rational for me to be to just go for B. Why? Because if the inspector thinks about what I'm thinking of and I and she's correct that I am going to pick box B, then you said she will put the money in. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if I just think about picking box B and she's correct, then I'll get a million. Well, 90% of the chance, so... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you get like 90% times a million expected. It's still more than a thousand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so I think... Um, so then, if I'm in the scenario at the moment and I have to pick which one I'm going with, then I think I would follow that same reasoning from before. I don't have any reason to doubt it now. So then I go for one box. Awesome. This is the perfect answer, the answer I also gave. I think it's super wrong because... <laughs> You're there now. The person, the experimenter already put in the money. Yeah. There's already either zero or a million in the box. Suppose there's zero in the box. If I take one box, I get zero. If I take both, I get yeah. a thousand. So if there's a million in the box, uh -huh. I get, if I take one, a million, otherwise I get a million and a thousand. It's no. always, yeah, you do. Because the inspector would have thought, okay, what are they going to think? But are you going to retroactively cause her to change, like that money is already No, it's there. already there, but the thing is, the inspector would have said, okay, are they going to do this chain of reasoning? And then 90% of the chance, the time they're right, yeah? So the inspector would have said, okay, you, we have, imagine we're going to do this experiment tomorrow, yeah? Yeah. And we're talking about it today, thinking yeah. of our strategy. So then your strategy would be, okay, I'm actually going to go for two boxes. So then 90% of the time, the inspector is right, and you are going for two boxes. So she so, put zero in the so, so, so there's two different things. If I know that I have to do this experiment tomorrow, yeah. then I'm going to do everything within my capability to make sure I'm a one boxer because I want that million. But in so order I'm to gonna do read, I'm going to read articles about one boxing all night. No, it's not that, like, the way the experiment is interesting, I guess, is not if you're trying to fake that you're a one boxer, but that if you are, <laughs> if you really believe it, yeah. like, it's about intention. And be, I, I agree that. If they didn't put in the money yet, then it's reasonable to try to become a one-boxer. You must be a one-boxer. But it is more reasonable to be a one-boxer. Yes, if 
they didn't put in the money yet. After they put in the money, you should just take both boxes. No, but the thing is, the inspector is right 90% of the time. So 90% of the time, they would have known that you would have changed your mind. Yeah, but, but, but still, like I'm not, I'm not gonna suppose they predicted I am a two boxer. I'm not suddenly gonna, well, I'm just gonna take one box now, I'm sure. She would have guessed that. Like, I can't, I can't change what she predicted. So why? You can't why? change what she predicted, but she can predict that you would have changed. <laughs> she would have predicted that you were going to change your mind yeah, 90% of the time. not change your prediction anymore, right? No, but the thing is, like, imagine us talking now, then 90% of the time she would have figured out that that's your strategy. Yeah? Because it's your strategy beforehand to, to think that you're gonna go for two boxes at the end. Sure. So the thing is, where is your, you have, you want your intention to be consistent, right? The day before, I wanna be a one boxer for sure. Yeah. But like you just but then the thing is, but then based on what you're telling me now, you would all already have in the back of your mind, I know I'm gonna change my mind. Yeah? But that's not how intention works. You can't say I'm gonna attend to change my mind. You know, like if you believe something now, then you're not going to say, well, you're not going to believe both that tomorrow you should take one box and then actually I should, tomorrow I should also change my mind and take two boxes. That's inconsistent. Okay, wait, wait. So you realize, right? We walked into the experiment and the money's already in there. But the nothing, thing is, you, nothing you think now yeah. influences that she already made the prediction. Yeah, but the thing is she made the prediction based on the strategy you had yesterday. And, the yeah. thing, and you want to know what your strategy is yesterday. Like today, imagine we're doing the experiment tomorrow. Then, yeah, today yeah, then you've already told me. Then we need to be one happening. boxers. Then we need to make sure. Yeah, but we need to always be one boxers. Because if we were two boxers 90% of the time, she would have figured it out. So, so why are you one boxing now? Just in case you ever get in the same experiment again? No, because so that, you're just so that my strategy... You realize you're just losing so Because 90% right? of the time, she's correct about the strategy. So... 90% of the time she's correct that if I'm a one boxer, then that's what I'll pick. So I yeah. am a one boxer. If, if you're a one boxer, you'll still lose money by one boxing. No, because by being a one boxer, then she's gonna 90% of the time put no, the but by, by right now, in. in the experiment, suppose you're a one boxer. Yeah. Still, if you two box, nonetheless, uh, like no, different but, than your character. No, you but decide you, said that, you said that 90% of the time she knows your strategy. Yes, she does. So she knows that you would have changed your mind. No, no. <laughs> uh, like, um, well, yes, that's true, probably. So it's bad. Yeah. Like, like the, she would this, have known it's, it's more similar to the toxin she, paradox. She would have known realized. everything that you're trying to do, including, it's not as if she only predicts up to the point before you change your mind. She also, no, no, of course not. She also but, knows all that. Uh, but still, oh, it's funny, it's really similar to the toxic paradox. But, but I need you to, to agree with me on this thing. Like, regard, <laughs> regardless of who you are, okay. what you predicted, you're always losing money by, like this is option only B, it's always less money than A and B. No, because you're assuming that the strategy is like independent of her prediction. But no, her prediction was designed to, to know what your strategy is and to act in response to it. So the thing is, when you say, okay, look, just you're in the scenario now, change your strategy. It's like, but that strategy, that is already something that she's tracking and was trying to figure out. But she already made the prediction. You can't, you can't 
Yeah, she already made the prediction. So, is it, is but it, she already made the prediction. But the thing is, if your strategy was in the moment to change your mind, you would have known that beforehand, that your strategy was in the moment to change your mind. But then, if you think that the day before the experiment, then you think two things. You think both that you should pretend, like that you should be really be, like authentically be, believe that you should get one box. But also that when you're in the scenario, you should change your mind. But that's not to believe authentically that you should pick one box, right? That's to be inconsistent. And to think that you should pick one box, but also change your mind and not pick one box. So there you're just believing that you should pick one box and not pick one box. That's inconsistent beliefs. Okay, this is fun. So I thought that the bed was dead. Apparently it's not. Uh, your camp is called Evidentialist. Okay. Mine is called... I forgot. In my head they're just like the right... You know the people the, that are right? Yeah, the, 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 the correct. <laughs> so, yeah. So you have... Uh, so my strategy is to look at like a game theory grid and look at my options and I see, well, oh, uh, choosing A and B right now dominates the other strategy. No, in doing that, you've forgotten that her prediction is dependent on your strategy. It's not, on my, it's not dependent on my choice, though. It is, because your choice is determined by your strategy. Yeah, so mm, it's not completely independent, but you can't change it anymore. It's, it's like the Sleeping Beauty problem, where you think that, that, that when you're in this situation, like what you choose to do in that situation is not independent of the probabilities you assigned, you know. Because the thing is, she was tracking yeah, your strategy. That. So, like, in what I'm thinking is that I would really hope I'm a one boxer, because that's that's what's gonna get me. But you have to authentically game. hope that you're a one boxer as well, because if you secretly in the back of your mind think, ah, I'm gonna change my mind, so um, then you're not how, how being consistent. How people also call this thing is like a punishment for rational people, because. Uh, in the in, in the sense of rational, of the like the game theory grid rational, you just always get the extra thousand. Whatever is in box B, you get the extra thousand of A. So I don't think it's a punishment for rational people. It's a punishment for rational people who want to cheat the system. <laughs> it's a, no, it's a punishment for people who think that they can have conflicting intentions and get away with it. So, because you, because you want to intend to be a one box, to believe that you're only going to pick box B, and then also intend to change your mind, but that's inconsistent. You can't all, both intend to pick box B and also intend to, in the moment, change your mind and not just pick box B, but pick both boxes. I should really look into the relation between this thing and the toxin paradox. Toxin paradox for people. Uh, so, I offer Dean. A glass of toxin, and I say, hey, you get a million euro if you form the intention to drink it. You don't need to actually drink it, but just form the intention to drink it tomorrow, and then I'll give it right away as soon as you have the intention. And then the problem is that uh, the toxin makes you like hungover for a day, like really hungover, so you really don't want to drink it. So what Dean is going to do is figure out, oh, well, I'll just uh, create the intention, I'll form the intention. And then I'm just gonna not drink it because I don't want to be hungover and I'll have the money anyway. And the the real problem I should say is he can't even really, if he wanted to, form the intention because he's gonna say, okay, yeah, I'm totally gonna drink it. Oh, I got the million euro now. Well, then I'm not really gonna drink it anymore because I don't want it. Yeah, it's difficult because when we're talking about intention, your brain can make things, your mind can make things true because intention is a psychological state, you know? So you can switch it on and off. 
without having to change anything in the world yeah. except for your own brain so the thing is I think in that situation like the toxin thing I would actually just like drink it <laughs> <laughs> because I wouldn't even think about intention because that screws it up when you think about like do I intend to drink it but not actually drink it no just drink it because then it's like you don't even have to go through the whole intention thing because the intention follows the action right like, yes but that, that, this is again I think that they call kind of a punishment for rational people because you don't need to drink it. You just need to yeah. be intentional. But then intention is so sensitive yeah, to external factors. And I think this is the, yeah, it's the same thing going on here. Yeah, where in your intention is sensitive. Write a paper about that. Ah, yeah. Or a book, a popular book. Yeah. So okay. the, um, in, the, in this boxes scenario where she, the detective will put in like a million euro if you intend to only take one box yeah. and put in a million euro and all and or put in zero euro if you intend to take both boxes one with zero and one with a thousand then it is the same thing it's sensitive to yeah. what your strategy is and you're trying to have you're trying to have both things you're trying to intend up to a point and then only when that's locked in and she can't change anything then intend differently but you can't have two intentions that are contradictory at the same time you know um, you got to figure out what your strategy is so i guess i'm not so th there's another difference, right? Because in the in the two boxes thing, you your intention is fixed, or like her predict prediction of your intention is fixed at a certain point. I guess I'm not trying to maximize, uh, or well, I am. Hmm, difficult. I'm pretty sure there's a difference in time here. No, but she would have figured out your strategy ninety percent of the time beforehand. You know, so she, if your strategy was to change your mind in the moment, she would have figured that out and she would have known that at the end of the day, you're going to be a two boxer. You look really yeah. disappointed that I'm not agreeing with you. <laughs> I'm sorry, Max. Yeah, that's cool. I'm, I'm the evidentialist, which means totally wrong. Um, e for evil. Well, before I said this, I'm definitely going to reconsider. Because the thing is, you're just assuming that you can block out a convenient part of your strategy from her, the detectives. No, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that I'll only get a thousand. Like, I don't think I'm going to get a million. Yeah. I think that it's going to be rational for me to pick both boxes because then I get the extra thousand. And she'll, she will have known this. She would so have known that. Yeah. I don't think I'll get the million. No. no. Because she would have figured out that you would have just wanted to change your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So you have to authentically be using Italian like to be, But it seems so rational to take both the money instead of only one of the money. No, because your intention is sensitive to her, to this, like the situation is sensitive to your intention. But maybe, no, I'd like so to So you can't just change your mind halfway through. I also think that if I'll pick only one box, I'll get zero euro, because she'll know that I'm at heart two boxes. No. But at heart, I'm a one boxer, so it's fine for me. Yeah, because I, I I fully commit to the evidentialist or whatever it's called strategy. Like, yeah. Yeah, maybe just more authentic than I. I just have to live authentically. No bad faith. Yeah. <laughs> you have this bad two boxer faith. Okay. Uh, we need to get out of here. I'm, I'm getting hungry. Is there anything else? With, like, there's. I wrote down at least six other things I wanted to talk uh, about. There's always more, but it's that's cool. I haven't heard about these different paradoxes before. Yeah, they're fun, man. Yeah. And I've done some more. I have a lot of posters as well, yeah. um, but they're in Dutch.
Maybe I'll hang them up in the mall room next year anyway. That's where we study them. And then, yeah, and uh, then people can train their dogs on that. Yeah, good. Well, it's been, it's been fun. Yes, thank you very much for doing this. Great topic. Uh, looking forward to seeing your work on the general wire. <laughs> yeah, awesome, man. Cool, thanks. 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 If you value logically speaking for yourself or for others, there's a number of ways you can help it grow. The easiest way to do this is by sharing it and rating it on iTunes or whatever medium you are using. Rating it may not seem like a big deal, but because ratings quickly influence to what extent distributing media recommend a podcast to new listeners, this is actually one of the most effective ways to support it. Sharing the podcast with people you know is also great, as it ensures a steady growth and allows you to continue these conversations with your friends and peers, which is ultimately the goal of this podcast.